Acts chapter 8, the first five verses, and then jumping down to verse 26 to 40. So, here's Acts chapter 8. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And then moving on to verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. And on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of the Kandike, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stand near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture that Eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of, my, of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotos and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Please do keep the conversation going after the service. Great to hear you getting to know one another, chatting. Um, the Tonga volcano eruption was so big that the atmosphere shook. A shockwave over a thousand kilometers just traveled outwards and it was felt across the entire globe. It was an amazingly powerful eruption and the footage that we were able to capture is mind-blowing of what happened. The shockwave just went out from the eruption. 
And today, in the book of Acts, we come to a shockwave moment as well. It's a shockwave moment that's been building for six chapters. As Amanda helpfully reminded us, the mission of the risen King Jesus cannot be stopped. Persecution or deception or logistical challenges or community tensions haven't been able to stop God's grace in Christ going outwards. Because the point is that Jesus is building his church. Then in chapter 7 of Acts, we see the eruption. And prior to this, we've had pockets of little, almost mini explosions, you could say, of of issues and tensions and persecution. But chapter 7 is the eruption, the moment that the religious leaders of the day kill Stephen. And after an eruption comes an aftershock. And that's where we are today in Acts chapter 8. The first three verses tell us what this aftershock is. It says, on that day, which is the same day that Stephen died, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house, and he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. On this day, persecution shook the church like never before. The entire church is now affected here, house to house. And who's doing this? Who's the perpetrator of this particular persecution that's so big and and a shockwave? Well, it's someone called Saul, who stood there giving the approval in chapter 7 of Stephen being killed. And now he's become a monster filled with rage. At his hands, people are losing their homes and their families and their jobs and their livelihoods. I mean, how would you feel being in that moment? I've never been there. But I suspect two things would come through my head if if I heard about Saul traveling around Golden Grove or Modbury or the northern suburbs. I would say, Stephen, you should have kept your mouth shut. I mean, really? I mean, did you have to go and spout off over 70 verses of how you guys are, are, are responsible for killing Jesus and got them all upset and angry? I mean, you could have just said it nicely. And the next thing I want to do is probably hide, go indoors, make my new religion in Jesus a bit more private. I'd be filled with despair, become silent, and hope that by God's grace, somehow, he wouldn't get me. What about you? Because I'd probably think at this moment, the mission of the risen King Jesus is going to have its end at the gates of Jerusalem. I had a good start, and like a drag race car, it just went off really quick, and now it's just slowing down, and it's going to stop and peter out. But thankfully, God is actually really good at being sovereign in these moments. And we'll see today that what happens is the shockwave, as it ripples through the church, God's sovereignty sits over every single inch of that. One of the reasons we have the book of Acts is because it clues us into the story that God likes to tell so that we know how to live faithfully in our own day. And this is one such story. Which means, as we'll see, Acts chapter 8 reminds us the great missionary is God himself. The great missionary in Acts is God himself. I'll I'll draw that out with two points from the story and then by looking at who the great missionary in our life, in our country is today as well. And I think you'll know where we're going when we get there. Or before we get there, actually. 
So in Acts chapter 4, it begins with a conjunction, reminding us that what has just happened is really important to knowing the story. It's not always there in every English translation, but it begins by saying, so or therefore, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Now, this intersection in the book of Acts is really important because we learn that the apostles, that's Peter and John, they stay in Jerusalem at this point. They don't leave. The persecution goes up and they just put their feet down and say, we're not moving. So who goes then? Who's scattered? Ordinary mum and dads, single guys, sisters, they're scattered into all the villages and cities proclaiming, preaching Jesus as they go. They're not theologically trained. They're just spirit-filled people who love Jesus. They're not grumbling about injustice. They're not blaming Stephen. They're not having a dig at the authorities for picking on them now. They don't act like they got kicked out, do they? They act like they got sent out. And this is an insight into how God's people are called to see the world. Even as pressure increases all around them, they know that God is worth the pressure, that Jesus matters infinitely more. And all the intersections in their life that they saw, no matter what they were, was simply a new way to talk about the same Jesus. They preached. It's, it's where we get the word evangelism from. They were telling the good news about Jesus, even as very bad news was happening to them. But what mattered wasn't getting people on their side, it was getting people onto Jesus' side. And gosh, I don't know how I'll feel and face an aftershock like that in my life. But I know that I want to follow the ordinary footsteps of these people, showing how Jesus is good news to every person along the way. And I'm sure you as well want to do that too. And we see it. We see one ordinary person by the name of Philip, just as he does. Philip is one of the seven in Acts chapter 6 who's chosen to serve, and he goes into the region of Samaria. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And as he does that, what happened, do you think? Well, from verses 6 all the way to 25, they believe. Suddenly, Zooming out, a big shift has happened in the book of Acts and for God's mission. Acts 1 to 7, the mission of the risen King Jesus cannot fail. But we still need to see the promise of Acts 1 8 when Jesus said, You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth to be fulfilled. The question now is, who is Jesus for? Sure, he can't stop the mission. It's going forward. The train is moving. But does that mean there's a certain type of person that won't get on board? Is there someone too far from the grace of God that was just, they're going to miss? Is there a people group too far away? Is God too distant geographically or culturally? Or is someone too opposed to Jesus? And so Luke, the author, answers that question by showing us real lives changed by Jesus. As Acts 8 goes on, we meet a sorcerer, the opposite of God's spirit, demonic, evil, imitating what God offers. But spiritual enemies and evil demons aren't too far away from God either. So then we meet someone who's not spiritually far away, but physically and ceremonially distant from God, a foreigner from Ethiopia. 
So you see, if persecution pushes out, it's only because God's plan is to draw all people in. And just so that you and me don't ever think that God's mission work is about how insightful we are or how clever our ideas are sitting around a table thinking what we're going to do, what we find now is that Acts 26 to 40 reminds us that God is actually the engineer of the whole thing. It begins with a messenger of God, an angel speaks to Philip, telling him to go south down the road. An angel signals a divine work. In fact, if you look at the book of Acts, every time a new chapter of God's mission begins, God is vividly behind it like never before to show us that this is not a human endeavor, this is a divine one. This is not Philip's good idea. Our mission work is not my good idea. (laughs) God is always going to get the glory, not us. And so Philip faithfully starts out. And as he starts out on God's commission, he meets someone unexpected, unexpected in his agenda, but perfectly timed in God's agenda. Look at verse 27 and 28. On his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in, the, in charge of the treasury of Kandak, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Now Luke gives us a lot of detail about who this person is. Why? Why do we need to know about this? Simply, this Ethiopian man is so far away from the boundaries of Judaism and Jesus But we need to think like a first century person to really get that. First of all, we learn that he's a man of color. He's an Ethiopian. It's not a derogatory term by any means. It's just showing he's not a local. It's the distance that's emphasizing from the temple and from another nation. Moreover, he's wealthy because he's riding in a chariot that can fit at least three people in it. He has a high-paying job. He's the treasurer of the queen, Then we learn five times, in fact, in this chapter, that he's a eunuch. Why? What does that matter? Simply that in certain matriarchal governments of the day, it was common for the highest officials who had ready access to the queen to be eunuchs to safeguard the royal line. You know why that would be. It feels a bit abhorrent today to think that's what happened, but historically that's what they did. But even more strange is this man is not coming on business to Jerusalem. He came to worship. But you see, this is a bit like going to the drive-in without a ticket or a car, hoping to see the movie behind the fence without a radio, and there's trees in the way. I mean, you're not setting yourself up for success in some ways, because in Deuteronomy 23, this particular man had no access to the temple. He, he worshipped God, he wanted to worship God, got there and realised he's never going to get in. His status as a foreigner and a eunuch meant he was prohibited from going any closer than just looking at the back. So his physical and his national identity stopped him coming close to God, never allowed to convert to Judaism either. And we learn he's on his way home. But did you see what else he was doing? 
the one thing that will forever change and define him is on his lips, is on his mind. He just can't make sense of it yet. What's he doing? He's reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Maybe he picked it up at the bookshop before he left, who knows. And God's timing is so beautiful. Because at this very moment of reading from the Hebrew Bible, Philip arrives. Moreover, the book he's reading from promises that the ban and the exclusion zone and the separation he felt would one day be removed. Listen to what Isaiah 56 verses 3 to 5 says. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath, who chooses what pleases me and holds fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will, th- I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. What is God promising here? There is a place for the foreigner in God's temple. Not just a place at the back, but brought in and given a place like a son or a daughter. A new name that shows you belong. And all of that happens by Jesus. He just doesn't realize that yet. And in God's grace and kindness, God says, Philip, go to that chariot and stand near it. And he heard this. He heard Isaiah. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? Philip heard a very familiar passage. And he connected with the man by simply asking a question. Do you understand? I mean, how did he know he didn't understand? Did he pronounce the words wrong? Maybe it was just so strikingly obvious that this wealthy foreign man looked so out of his depth. It was just a logical thing to say. Either way, Philip didn't force himself into the chariot. He just asked. And he was invited in. And the man then says to him, unless someone explains it to me, I have no idea. I mean, this is just God's providence dripping, isn't it? Philip's led to a place, he hears a man reading the Hebrew Bible, he asks for help to understand, which is probably the best known Old Testament reference related to Jesus, in fact, from Isaiah chapter 53. And then Luke, just to make sure we really get what he's reading and how wonderful this moment is, he says, here's what he was reading from Isaiah. It says, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shearer is silent, he didn't open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And then the eunuch says to Philip, tell me, please. I mean, is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? I mean, who is the man that's denied justice? Is it Isaiah? If not, who could it be? And Philip's answer, definite answer is, of course, Jesus. Because the most beautiful verse here just says, Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. He would have told him that we're all disqualified from God too. Not simply as a foreigner or a eunuch, but from a spiritual distance. He would have told him that through the one whose life was taken away, this servant of Isaiah, you can now be brought into God's kingdom so that won't be distance. 
Do you see? This is God's divine word as an agent to save people. It's part of how God is bringing people into his kingdom through Jesus, by the Spirit, with his people, and as his word is read and explained. And as they travel on, Philip explains the good news of Jesus, dancing all over the Old Testament, dancing all through Isaiah, and he goes on and on for kilometer after kilometer, and they're passing by trees and the dusty roads, and they pass by, by God's sovereignty, some water. And at some point in that conversation, Philip covered baptism, and the eunuch sees the water, and as they travel along in verse 36, they came to the water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in my way of being baptized? Now, remember, a eunuch couldn't convert to Judaism. But because of Jesus, he can now be fully accepted into God's people, not as a Jewish person, but as a child of God, a son, as Isaiah 56 said, of God. And this is part of what baptism is. It shows that we belong to Jesus. Because the answer to his question is, is of course, nothing. Nothing can stop him now. Jesus welcomes him. In a world of difference and exclusion that determines your lot in life, Jesus welcomes all to change and to make new. And so wonderful is this, that even the the, the variation of verse 37 that's absent from some of our oldest manuscripts tries to explain it in more detail, but it's not really needed because when we get to verse 38, we know all we need to know. He gave orders to stop the chariot, then both Philip and the eunuch went down in the water and Philip baptized him. We don't know how Philip baptized him. The only detail that we're actually given is that they went in the water. They both went down and they came up. Was this a sprinkling? Was this an immersion? The text is silent. The point though is that just as Peter preached to the Jewish people in Acts 2, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and you receive the Holy Spirit, so too that same Jesus, that same baptism, are for all. You see, water baptism is part of belonging to God's people. It's a sign of inclusion. A picture of the washing of Jesus' blood, of being grafted into his family of grace permeating your whole life in both body and soul. And the apostles and Philip tied that to their gospel message, tied it to how they spoke about Jesus. You see, Jesus is the substance of our faith, and it's in preaching him, it's in the Lord's Supper and baptism, that his grace is seen, it's on display, more evidently, more fully, to all the nations and all people. And that's the salvation event we see in Acts. Faith, repentance, the Spirit, baptism, they're all tied together. And it's the same for you and me today. So may I just pause for a moment and ask, have you been baptized? Why haven't you been? After all, the cry of this man is, what can stand in the way of me being baptized? And that's true of every believer. Don't stand in your own way. Repent from your sins. Trust Jesus. Receive the Spirit. Be baptized. Enjoy the fullest picture of belonging to God's people in Jesus. And then there's one final part to the story we see. Verse 39 and 40. When they came up out the water, the Spirit suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again. But went on his way rejoicing. Philip appeared 
at Azotos and traveled about preaching the gospel in the towns until he reached Caesarea. Unless there be any doubt as to the power of Jesus here, a new joy is found when this man realizes he's now included with God's people. He went on his way rejoicing. But what happened to him? What happened to this Ethiopian eunuch in Jerusalem, reading Isaiah, meeting Philip, going back home? Well, the second century church father, Irenaeus, said he went on his way rejoicing to be the herald in Ethiopia of Christ's advent. God's sovereign over his mission to the nations, even Ethiopia in this instance, using a saved person to preach to others. And we have no reason to disbelieve what Irenaeus said either. But what happened to Philip? Well, God's spirit moves him along, and again from there he headed north along the coastal road, preaching the gospel in all the cities, till he reached a place called Caesarea. And there, it seems, he just settled down. Because the next time we meet Philip, the author, Luke, writing in the first person now, in chapter um, 21, says, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist. One of the seven, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Isn't that wonderful? So, who was the great missionary in Acts? Missionary in Acts. It's God, from start to finish. And today, who is the great missionary in Australia? Well, it's God himself. Just like Philip came to know that God is sovereign where he puts you, always taking the first step in placing you and bringing people to himself. You see, left to our own, we're too insulated, too inward-looking to think about others the way God does. But God isn't. He's profoundly other-centered, isn't he? I mean, after all, the key imperatives in this chapter, in verse 26 and 29, are all initiated by God. He says, go south. Go and stand near the chariot. This is not Philip. This is God directing Philip in the way to go. And that should be a wonderful moment of motivation for you and me because God's sovereignty is how we're empowered day by day. We see that in three ways. Firstly, the suffering pushed Philip out. Suffering and persecution are now refined in God's agenda, just as Jesus shows us. We see that God's sovereignty through the power of his spirit, the prompting, the guiding, the leading, just like Philip realized. And as God works in others, already reading Isaiah the prophet. And thirdly, knowing God's word is a powerful tool in directing people to Jesus too. Philip connected with this man by listening to what was going on in his life. And just by being there, he asked a question and told him the good news of Jesus. And that's why God's word has the power to save, because it centers on Jesus. And this is just one example in Acts of how God works. But the point is to not put our trust in ourselves, but in Jesus. I mean, just think, in your life, there's a question on the outline there. In your life, who are the people that God has placed around you? What are their names? Workmates, family, friends. Just, just think, who are they? They're not there by accident, but by God's sovereignty, by God's purpose. Who are they? May you spend a moment thinking through them and pray for them this week. Write their name down. I think, who are the people in my little sphere of influence? They're not there because I'm there. But they're there because God has put me there. Who are they? Pray for them. Write their names down. God is sovereign. 
and God is doing the saving. Philip found himself in a new place with the same God, and what he knew to be still true was that Jesus is real and Jesus saves. So the aftershocks, the changes, the challenges, the new circumstances, God's word, God's spirit is the same. And perhaps in the swirl of 2022 and how it's begun, with all the changes, all the new people, all the job changes, all the differences, perhaps God has just sovereignly, quietly placed you where you are so that the great missionary of Australia can do his work through you too. After all, he's the great missionary in Acts. He's the great missionary in Australia. He's the great missionary in your life. And isn't that amazing? It really is all about Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, you are the one who reaches out to us in our sin and our mess. And by your kindness, you redeem us through Jesus Christ. And I'm so amazed. And I'm so thankful that you take that initiative, Lord. And that then you're not just done with us, but you place us back in our world as someone who now knows you, rejoicing in what you've done to then be useful to other people. And as we see in this story, your sovereignty and spirit hangs over every moment. May we trust that, not ourselves, but Jesus. And Lord, give us the boldness and the courage to listen and ask questions and to point people to Jesus day by day in whatever circumstance we are in, however new that might be, however strange it might be, you've put us here. And so Lord, we thank you and we rest in that, knowing that you are our good God who is in control. So Lord, the mission of Jesus can't be stopped and no one is excluded. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.